The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. I'm sure you've been looking forward to Michael O'Mahony's lecture and the second part, which I have for you tonight. This is the last part of the story about William Bence Jones and how the Land League Wars affected him and what end did he come to. So enjoy. But despite his happiness, alarm bells were ringing in the Salani in 1878, when profits from his own enterprise plummeted to 34 shillings an acre. And further anxiety was experienced in 1879 when only 28 shillings were realised. Remember, he had margins of £2 an acre over 20 years earlier. He was always conscious of market risks, and he warned a select committee of the House of Commons that if there is a famine or bad harvest, many of the installments from the tenant population could not be kept up. Though he didn't recognise it, the signs for himself were ominous, and due to his absolute unwillingness to compromise. Some time earlier, he had obliged all his tenants to accept extraordinarily complex leases to circumvent compensation clause in the 1870 Act, and for a very good reason, when he said that Irish tenants needed to disabuse of the notion that their holdings were possessed as an inheritance, not a business. Vince Jones, however, reconciled with some old foes like those of the Cock Farmers Club, who invited him to share his expertise with them by giving a lecture. His new dairy was open for all to see, and, and, and he was giving people advice how to export their butter ready to the English markets. And by 1880, the cattle prices were so depressed that it got him to rethink the value of the railway, which he now supported, and he even chaired a meeting in Tanakilty about the necessity of getting the, the link from Bandon. And while he generously advocated that all the landowners along the way should give the land freely, or else take shares in the company to the value of the land. Meanwhile, the land war had commenced in Colton in 1879, but wasn't exercising the mind of the ascendancy, to whom it took by surprise in 1880. Vince Jones could, could think himself excused or immune from such a thing if he had read the, the Agricultural Gazette in February of that year, which was most complimentary about the, met- the modern methods deployed at Disneyland, with Buckingham of course, singled out for special mention. The most delicious butter is made from the cream at first skimming, the writer eulogised. An idyllic picture was presented of contented labourers working industriously in the fields, provided with comfortable cottages, potato feed patches, and ten shillings a week in wages. And to avoid any misunderstanding, the writer was at pains to point out that he received this information from the labourers themselves. The writer did point out, of course, as well, that the labourers were obliged to be in the field at six o'clock in the morning and had only one break during the day. But still, Vince Jones seemed to be all-powerful and indestructible. But whilst at the height of his powers and influence, derogatory articles began to appear more frequently on the Irish press that scorned what was called his festive imagination and his English superiority, 
which enabled him to tell his countrymen why Ireland is poor and her people not prosperous. As poor prices continued, the clamouring increased for rent reviews, but Vince Jones remained a prisoner to the free market. Arguing that while rents remained static from the 1840s to the 1880s, the labourers' wages had tripled and agricultural output and prices had more than doubled. This was not his imagination, because James S. Donnelly, the famous historian, claimed that Griffith's valuation was outdated by 1880 and that the Land League must have known it. But ironically, Vince Jones never wished to let his land, because had he worked it himself to a higher standard, he could double his income, as proven from his accounts. In that regard, he was totally different to other landlords, who were dependent on the rental income for their, for their income. Significantly, a branch of the Land League in Tonakilty wasn't founded until August 1880, almost a full year after the start of the Land War. And it was formed not directly as a result of any activity by William Vince Jones, but following the eviction of John McCarthy by Miss Hungerford of his holding on the island. Reports suggest that up to 4,000 people attended at McCarthy's holding in support when the Land League was founded. And while Vince Jones, along with other landlords, were condemned, some thought it more appropriate to applaud the Catholic Church. The appointment of a provisional chairman was also of huge significance, because his successor helped shape not just the legacy of Vince Jones, but the direction of the land war, and perhaps the course of Irish history. Rinsford, Julius Alana, on the 7th of December, and the tenants were instructed to pay only Griffith's valuation. And with Vince Jones incapable of compromise, an unpleasant impasse prevailed that swiftly moved to a boycott. The Cork Examiner observed, affairs at this land were managed according to pure mathematics. No other earthly apparently influence apparently affecting Mr. Ben Jones's dealings with his tenantry. The writer suggested also that the feeling of dislike was not confined to the tenant classes, but was more profound among the gentry and the, and the middle class, whose pride he never failed to wound when the opportunity offered. Vince Jones was certainly not part of an ascendancy club. He was too independent in mind and too cantankerous to be a part of any such consensus. His livestock were the first casualties of the boycott, and great hardship was experienced in shipping cattle from Cork to Bristol, and according to reports, they wandered all over the city for the want of a drover. The labourers, too, were most vulnerable, and they became the first human casualties of the conflict when they received threatening orders to quit. In a letter to the Times, Vince Jones maintained they were paralysed by fear, intimidation and threats. And the great duke for himself and his son outside the house of the Salan was also meant to heighten the anxiety. Over several decades, Vince Jones was a noted and a feared protagonist and served many, survived many tussles. But nothing compared to the gladiatorial and venomous encounter with the towering figure of Father John O'Leary was the newly elected chairman of Clannacilty Land League. Interestingly, 
Father O'Leary was a curate of Church in Ireland when the Land League was founded in, down in Shidani on the previous August and only came to Tonakilty in 1881. The parish priest at that time was Father Madden. The late editor of the Southern Star, Liam O'Regan, did considerable research into the battle between Father O'Leary and Vince Jones and helped to immortalise the reputation of Father O'Leary. While his charisma, determination and leadership definitely helped the tenants of this land, the question must be asked, did it not come at a cost to other parishioners who were equally deserving of his support? And I am referring here to the labourers who were employed on the estate. Father O'Leary was described by, by his friends as a man of calibre, powerful intellect and moral courage. And he con contributed a series of articles to the Contemporary Review in what O'Regan called, called a sensation in England that he even impressed, impressed Gladstone, who congratulated him on his brilliant indictment of Irish Islamism. To his eternal credit, he had remained loyal to Parnell even after the Kitty O'Shea affair, and remained loyal to Uncle Parnell's death in 1891. He presided over huge and imposing meetings all over Cork County, and especially here in Clannacilty, where his jockeys with Vince Jones are now part of legend. In the Southern Star Centenary publication of 1989, Liam O'Regan observed, A description of one as an angel and the other as a Caliban or a devil might well be too extreme, but such were the philosophy of exchanges conducted publicly in the English and Irish press during the early 1880s, it is well nigh impossible to avoid being judgmental. A cop examiner reporter wishing to experience firsthand the human impact of the boycotting visited Lissaland, and to his surprise, he was cordially invited inside by young Willem. The loss of the and suffering for the 30 families was foremost on Willie's mind. And he, he was relieved to tell the reporter that 400 sheep and 60 cattle had been successfully disposed of at the Dublin market. He was expecting infantry and cavalry shortly to provide protection, and he confirmed that they had plenty of provisions and were in excellent spirits. But behind the outward show of cheer and drudgery, the drudgery was getting to them, as Lily explained when she wrote to her sister Carrie. Poor Willie's back and neck were quite doubled over one evening, and my arms were weak at milking. And even now we can neither of us sit down in a low chair without groans over our poor legs. If that hard-hearted brute, Mr Gladstone, could only be hung out in chains as, as the officer of the dragoons and bandits suggested yesterday, we should do very well. A notice, a notice was then posted on the church, the Catholic Church peers, threatening Vince Jones, which prompted Father O'Leary to convene a meeting of the League in order to condemn the outrage and dissociate themselves from the threat. He assured his arch rival that he had nothing to fear, but then proceeded to lambast him by reminding his listeners of the Coffin, the coffin incident from 1856, and he worked the crowd to a frenzy branding Vince Jones as one who had earned deep detestation and was a despot in his fear. Father O'Leary was having it both ways, calling for calm, 
but using inflammatory language. But Vince Jones did not accept his assurances, and he carried a revolver himself for personal protection, in addition to two armed policemen providing further protection for his family. But he wasn't without hope, and expressed gratitude to the shopkeepers, who he claimed gave freely, as they could see who the real tyrants were. And though he suggested they were forced, of course, by the Land League, through intimidation and fear, to support the boycott. But tactically, Vince Jones felt that he'd be in real trouble if the tenants stopped the rent, but if the labourers had been allowed to work. But now he planned to put all his land in grass, thus eliminating the need for labour as far as possible. In his correspondence to the Contemporary Review, Father Leary examined the rents of ten of the tenants to prove that Vince Jones's rents were often triple and sometimes more than that of Griffith's valuation. This was almost a quarter of the tenants at the time. And he also showed that Vince Jones had a habit of taking land back from farmers when rents were due, even though he would never reduce the price of the rent to reflect the reduction in the acreage. The boycott brought together farming and commercial classes across the sectarian divide and involved large and small farmers. However, it is unlikely that the old class divisions between farmers and labourers were healed to any great extent. Father O'Leary boasted that he had been through the entire state and knew every one of the tenants personally. Yet, when challenged by Vince Jones, he conceded that he only knew two of the labourers and never spoke to any of them. And remember, there were 28 <coughs> labouring families on the estate. So it's unlikely that any of the labourers ever joined the Land League, as, su as suggested by Father O'Leary. Vince Jones was extremely clever and well aware of the class difference that, uh, that existed and eager to exploit it. And he said, The treatment of the farmers is, the is of the very closest and hardest kind. If the farmers were treated by the landlords with half the hardness, there would be plenty heard about it. Certainly in the short term, the labourers were seen after, and they got houses provided for those who were evicted, they got work on neighbouring farms, and a special fund was set up for them. But the long-term implications for them, I would suggest, deserves and merits a separate study of its own. By March 1881, Father O'Leary saw victory within his sights, claiming that the landlords were prepared to negotiate. He exhorted his members to remain steadfast, and ordered them to be courageous to the very bounds of constitutional agitation. But from this land there was no surrender. No revised terms were flatly rejected, and proceedings were threatened if outstanding rents were not immediately and, and, and totally discharged. O'Leary raised the stakes by enforcing the boycott, and he pledged that the Clonacilty Land League would be the energetic in legitimate agitation in the future, as we have been in the past. But he was now protected by the newly formed sub-commissioners who adjudicated on rent disputes that superseded the eviction process and safeguarded, of course, the tenant farmer. But who spoke for the weak, for the marginalised, who remained vulnerable and leaderless, as neither age, religion or nationality would save them from the wrath of Vince Jones. And we will examine 
one such case along each of those lines. The O'Driscoll children were orphaned when the eldest boy was 16, and even though they had a rich uncle who was prepared to pay the rent, Vince Jones would not allow the orphans on the, on the estate, so he had them evicted. This according to Father Leary would melt the heart of the harvest <coughs> and is of the black of the black of the blackest of the black. Protestant orphans failed fare little better when Willem Perrin brought a case uh, before the, for the, the sub-commissioners for a reduction in rent in June 1882. Children were kept by Perrin for the Protestant Orphan Society to supplement his income on his 22 acres of land. Instead of focusing on the merits of Perrin's case, the legal brains amused themselves by poking fun at Perrin and his total misfortune orphans before ruling against them and in favour of Vince Jones. In 1860, Vince Jones brought over Joseph Nicholson from Cumberland to manage a farm of 223 acres of poor land at Scaife that he claimed that no Irishman could manage. In recognition of the improvements made by Nicholson under the Land Act of 1881 meant that he was entitled to a reduction of rent from £115 to £80 a year. Nicholson did not ask for a reduction initially, but he was forced into it when Ben Jones would not give any leeway in the payment of the rent. Nicholson said he was like a drowning man. He was catching anything he could get his hands on. He would have to pay or go bankrupt. Nicholson lived actually at that time over in Kilrush House in Desert Surges. And his son had a, had, a, had a land there, and he sold the interest in that farm in 1897 of 62 acres when they went back to England. In his writings, Father Leary expended much time and energy compiling and publishing the rents of the Salan estate, which showed him an average to be 49% above Dickens' valuation. However, by 1880, as I said already, Griffiths was largely outdated. But then, Father O'Leary didn't have the advantage of the judicial rents that were set forth by the, by, set forth by the newly set up Sub-Commissioner's Court under the Land Acts of 1881. So comparing the actual rent from the revised rent sanctioned by the Sub-Commissioner's Court is a more useful basis for comparison. And I use those as a comparison and I looked at the Sub-Commissioners and compared them to the landlords like the Beamishes, this Hungerford and Lord Bandon, you probably won't be able to see them there, they're probably too small. But I found that the Salan rents were higher, but just by 10% on average than those on the adjoining estates. Judicial rents were forensically and scientifically established, having taken cognizance of things like farm improvements, including land drainage, buildings and other improvements, whether paid for by the tenant or the landlord. And the significant point is that these new rents had legal authority, whereas Father O'Leary's figures were historic and had no legal standing. But despite the boycott, agrarian violence was not widespread here in Tonicilty. And I could find no case being brought under the Coercion Act in the immediate Tonicilty area between 1879 and 1882. Neither did any eviction on this land get the same notoriety as that given to the attempted eviction of the Hudley family at Castleview, where the landlord was Francis Evans Bennett. Indeed, Bennett 
was involved in some particularly harsh evictions, particularly in Kilmeen, where the parish priest, Father McCarthy, spent some time in jail for his trouble. But the greed for land was so powerful and potent and irresistible that some were, resist, were willing to risk, risk all to take the farm from an evicted neighbour. And this pleased Vince Jones no end. Indeed, the records of many Land League meetings suggest that land grabbers were of greater concern to the Land League than landlords. And we had a few cases here that run the history books from our own neighbourhood in Clonakilty. We might deal with them some other night. At the height of his powers, the West Cork Eagle, which would have been a, a, a unionist paper, opened all rooms for Vince Jones, with allegations that Vince Jones had attempted to bribe Bishop Craig of Cork with £5,000 for the building of St. Fimber's Cathedral in the 1860s on condition that no Catholic or Irishman be employed as architect. It also alleged that the £500 that we referred to earlier had been given to Dr. Webster for the building of the college on express condition that no Irishman be employed. Indeed, it was alleged as well that Dr. Webster brought all the material over from England and that the horses and caps that brought up the docks to the, to the site were belonging to William Vince Jones of the Salaam. Dr. Webster compounded the problem for Vince Jones when he said there was some merit to the suggestion and that Vince Jones may have given £5,000 on condition that no Irishman be employed as architect. And the fact that William Burgess, an Englishman, got the contract didn't help matters. As the controversy waged, Webster was banished to London for his part in the controversy. So there is clear evidence that the £500 given initially was given with conditions attached. But the, the allegation regarding the £5,000 has never been proved one way or the other. And at, at the height of the controversy, death intervened and put a stop to it at the time. Because when preparing to return to Salaam, William Vince Jones fell suddenly ill in his London home and died on the 22nd of June, 1882. And despite being a man of some consequence, who dominated his landscape, his passing generated a paucity of sorrow, and there were no eloquent uh, obituaries in the national or local papers. Yet, from beyond the grave, he still possessed the power to evoke intense feelings. At the July meeting of the Clannacilty Board of Guardians, the chairman proposed a motion to adjourn the meeting as a matter, a matter of respect, to which several objected, and some walked out. According to Mr. O'Brien, Vince Jones had been a landlord that insulted and maligned our country and treated the members of this board with contempt and ridicule. The best tribute would be to let him lie in oblivion and pass over the charity of silence. Hungerford considered him to be a very clever man who had saved immensely of money for the Union. But hostility continued until December, when after heated exchanges, William Murphy suggested that the best tribute was to pass the, the, the <coughs> a vote of thanks to the angel of debt that could short the life of the greatest tyrant that ever lived. <laughs> Despite being aloof, independent of mind and of thought and what others thought, it was surely not obviously that William Vince Jones had thought 
for himself when he hosted his tenants at that famous party in 1878. Historians generally agree that William Vince Jones was the supreme embodiment and symbol of the worst features of Irish nationalism, but he did little to exonerate his reputation by referring to such things as lying, evil and drink as having their permanent abode in the holy island of Ireland. A primary objective of this study was to challenge much of the legacy of historians Jones by broadening the scope of the, her of the examination and by being cognizant of things like race, and ancestry, class and religion. That he believed in the supremacy of the English race, of the established church and the hierarchy of class, there is little doubt. That does not necessarily mean that he was more bigoted, prejudiced or intolerant than, than any of his chief adversaries. To vindicate his perceived rights, he attacked, sued and evicted, rich and poor, Catholic and Protestant, Irish and English, and he never, he, he never discriminated in his targets. By referring to Father O'Leary as the mere son of an Irish farmer, Vince Jones let himself exposed to the accusation of class superiority. But he was arguably as benign at his tenants as the large farmer was on their neighbours. An important objective of this talk was to dis dis disentangle the myth from reality by highlighting the fact that the large farmers, including those at Lissaland, were themselves landlords. And to show the class discrimination that existed between them and their labourers. He set up the model farm, exhorted his tenants to follow his lead, and he worked tirelessly to improve his estate and to increase its efficiency to the mutual advantage of himself and his, and his tenants. The story of the labourers, however, remains untold. And one wonders what happened to John Bryan, his wife and his five children, who were so truly deprived of employment and a comfortable homestead. Being incapable of compromise was Vince Jones's final undoing, because had he negotiated rents in December 1880, he possibly would have survived the land war that was already coming to a conclusion at the time of his death. In addition, he endeavoured to impose an English system of landlord-tenant relationship that was totally at variance with the Irish understanding of land. On the more crucial question as to whether Ben Jones was a racial and religious bigot, it is necessary at this juncture to reserve judgment, because the St. Fimber's controversy needs to be examined further to see if there is convincing evidence to prove it one way or the other. And until then, the definitive epitaph of Willoughby's Jones cannot be truly written. And just as he was controversial in life, he remains an elusive enigma in death. But winds of change were blowing, and the storm that had enveloped the Salan over the previous three years quietly abated and faded slowly from the memory. In 1886, but 30 years too late, the first train rolled into Clonakilty. Father O'Leary returned to Skibreen, from Skibreen to Clonakilty in 1889 as parish priest and went on to gain further notoriety as Monsignor John O'Leary. And he remained here for the next 32 years and died during another war, the War of Independence in 1921.
the, land, the various land acts, and in particular the Wyndham Land Act of 1903, ensured that the tenant farmers owned their own holdings by the early 1900s. But in this research, I could find nothing to see what happened to those 20-something labouring families who were on the Salana estate, and my sincere wishes that somebody will make me more successful in the future than I have been. The estate itself passed to Ben Jones' eldest son, Willem, but within a year, tragedy struck when he was killed in a shooting accident. This was followed by the loss of his youngest daughter, Philippa, two years later in 1885. So having lost her husband and two of her children in the space of two years, Caroline, Ben Jones' wife, who was generally regarded as being a very kindly and a very caring woman, succumbed and died in August 1886. The estate passed to their younger son, Reginald, who possessed a totally different uh, outlook on life that even embraced Catholicism and some suggest nationalism as well. In any event, life within the main would never be the same again, and the estate passed to C.O. Stanley and others. And we were delighted to see lately that the little house and the adjoining lands had become the property of Colette Toomey. And we wish Colette and her family well in whatever future plans she may have for this one's troubled and historic estate. Thank you.